All right, awesome. Uh, well, hey, man, we are so excited that you're here this morning. If you're a guest visiting with us, man, you're in the best place in the world. You just got to get plugged into this church. As a matter of fact, we are so crazy and excited about inviting people, man, that we just want to go insane over this Easter season. I mean, think about it, man. The world is watching. This is our chance to connect with the entire watching world as a church. And, man, we want to make a difference. So we, uh, this is like we're passing these little guys out. These are our Easter cards. This is like somebody's ticket, golden ticket to a new life in Jesus Christ. Amen? Man, we're going to get excited about this. Yeah, we got an opportunity to connect with the lost and see the community come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So we're really excited about who is waiting for you. You got people in your neighborhood, in your family, at the, uh, at the coffee shop, Starbucks, wherever it is you go to get your Joe, and they're waiting to be invited to church. So let's do that together this week. We'll just be praying about that, man. Six services, two campuses, three days, two cities. It's going to be a main event here at Southcrest Church, and we're excited about it. But we're in week two of our series, Road to Pardon. And last week, Sean did an incredible job uh, describing the Last Supper, and he put a new twist on it to help us see it in a new way, I think. And uh, he said this uh, last week, Jesus wants us to be more fascinated by him than we are our own failure. And I thought that was a great way to think about it. And we're going to launch from that. And look, this is week two. We're going to look at the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' moments in the garden with his disciples. And so uh, as we're talking about this, man, I think that we are going to get into some really good stuff. So let's get into it. We are, uh, as humans, man, we face all kinds of challenges. Life is hard. Life is difficult. If you think about it, um, man, we've been through probably, just in a room this size, there's probably been all kinds of difficult, challenging experiences that you have seen. And maybe right now, in this moment, you're facing some of the most difficult things you've ever faced in your life. But we've got folks in here who've probably lost loved ones, maybe lost fortunes, who've served in combat. I mean, chances are you've seen some pretty challenging things in your life. And we all have. I mean, we all face suffering and painful things in difficult environments. And so um, I know for me, uh, I was in the delivery room. You know, I didn't experience, obviously, a lot what Jackie experienced, but I was in the room with her. So I feel like that kind of counts for something, right? Maybe not. I don't know. So we had, this, um, we had this incredible experience, man. My first daughter, I remember it like it was yesterday. We were in the delivery room. She was, you know, delivering that baby. And so I'm there coaching her beside her, like, I'm, you know, telling her what to do, you know, just helping her understand how this process works and stuff. So it was really awesome. I was really there helping her out. But, you know, so then we, everything's going good when you're in the delivery room, if you've ever been there, until there's like a complication. And there can be any little things. I mean, for us, it was a small thing. They were like, oh, the cord's wrapped around something. We need to be careful. But then at that moment, all the doctors started coming in. It was like war zone, you know, when from peaceful environment, you know, I'm listening to my playlist to like DEFCON 5, you know, like everybody is there. And I'm like, they're all freaking out. I'm getting yelled at by some lady in Spanish. I have no idea what she was saying, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't nice, whatever she was saying. So like, it's crazy in there. And so, so then like, here's the baby. She comes out and I'm like peeking over doctor's shoulders, you know, like trying to get my child. And so I don't know why this was important to me, but apparently it was important that I get those scissors that they give you and cut the cords. Like I've got one contribution to this experience. I'm going to make my, my play here. So she's, the doctor's coming in and it's kind of like a tense scenario and she's about to cut. I mean, I literally step in, grab the scissors from the doctor and go in to cut the umbilical cord. So I was like, that is my job. So then she's like, she is so angry at me. She's like, you're unclean. Get away from here, sir. And I'm like, that's my baby. I will cut that cord. So <laughs> anyways, it was crazy. But um, man, delivery can be traumatic, right? I mean, mad props to you moms, right? Let's give it up to moms. Yeah, right? You're amazing. 
We love you. So uh, recently we decided to have another dependent. And um, wait, wait, that's not, I don't think I'm supposed to say that. <laughs> no, I mean, we're having a baby, yeah? Come on. We're having a baby. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, it's our fourth. So the yeah. room just got real quiet on that one. Not quite as much applause on that phrase, on that announcement, right? So my friends heard that that we were having number four, and so it is going to be another girl. So I will have four baby girls in my life, man. I'm so excited. I'm like, uh, if only I had the wisdom that I have now back when I was still dating, man. I would like be the most suave guy, but as it is, I'll just love my girls well. But so anyway, so, um, so our friends, they heard that we were having four, four girls and they were like, man, you got to check out Jim Gaffigan's routine on this. Have y'all heard Jim Gaffigan on this? Hilarious, man. So, so he's like, I don't know what it's like to have four children yet. You know, I'm still, um, you know, still trying to figure it out. But he says, if you want to know what it's like having four kids, just imagine you're drowning and then someone hands you a baby. So that's kind of what I have to look forward to. I can't wait for that experience for four children. So, but my wife, man, she is the sweetest pregnant lady in the world. She's amazing. She's awesome. There's Jackie. Y'all, Jackie, wave to everybody. Everybody say hey to Jackie right over there. She's awesome. She's the cute. She's got this shirt that says, feed me and tell me I'm pretty. And it's like, you know, her pregnant shirt that she's wearing. So that's the rule. You're supposed to just give her whatever you But like pregnant ladies, man, you do not get in the way of their cravings, right? I mean, you just got to stay out of the way. I mean, really, you just kind of let them have whatever they want. I mean, that's really the rule. If you're pregnant moms, we just need to like let you have whatever. But for especially for Jackie, she loves the Chick-fil-A hot brown. Have y'all heard about the Chick-fil-A hot brown? Anybody experienced that yet? You ha- if you get it, you can only get it at the dwarf house. And if you get it, you really have to try it spicy with the spicy chicken. I mean, it's actually pretty good, but it's pretty much nothing but like lard and cheese. And I mean, that's like, it's baby brain making food. Okay. That's really what it's all about. So, um, but you know, I know that I, she is the sweetest one in the world, but I just do not get in front of her when it's time for her to have her hot brown. So I just let her have that, you know, and if she needs to eat, sometimes we split it. If she needs to eat the whole thing, you know, I just let her eat it. You know, I just drink my water, you know, I'm just a sip of my, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I still eat more than her and she's pregnant. That's how bad it is. So, all right, but here's my question this morning. All right, so we, we all face difficult things, right? How do we face the most difficult pressures of our lives. That's what we're going to talk about. And how can we come through the worst that life has to throw at us? When, when our soul is in distress, how do we survive? And how do you come out of that? I mean, that's the challenge that we're going to talk about this morning. Because here's the thing. I believe who you really are comes out when you are under pressure. Think about that, right? I mean, we can all be civil and nice when things are going great. But like when the pressure starts to build, what comes out of us? You know, who are we when things are challenging, when things are difficult? Who are you when things aren't going your way? Like when your kids start acting up in like the playground or the restaurant and you're like, you're like, what is that screaming? I mean, come on. And you realize it's your child screaming, you know, like how do you handle that? You know, or when you're at work and you've been working your tail off to get that promotion and you realize someone else kind of swooped in at the last minute and got it in front of you. Like those times, in those moments, when life is not going your way, when it's really challenging and you're under pressure and things are stressful, how do you respond? So we're going to look at this. We're going to look about how we come through the difficult times and what's the secret to coming through our suffering so that we love God on the far side of it. 
Okay, we're going to look at the life of Jesus. And this is a time in the life of Jesus that even he balked at the challenge that was in front of him. I mean, even Jesus couldn't face up to the difficulty that was in front of him or had a hard time facing up to it. So a time when the Son of God was overwhelmed. And as we look at how Jesus Christ dealt with his suffering, one of the most challenging moments that he experienced here on this earth, I think it's going to help each and every one of us figure out how we can come through our own suffering and give God glory. Okay, so let's pray, and we're going to get into the Word. Father, we ask that you would come down, Lord, that you would let all the stuff that's on us, that's not of you, just shake off, God. In Jesus' name, I pray that your Spirit would teach us. May our hearts be open to your Word this morning. We thank you, God, for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. I'll read this for us this morning. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for just one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's like the story of my life, y'all. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. When he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So, this is the picture. This is the story. All right, I know this is this, uh, in this series, we're talking about the road to pardon. It's kind of a heavy series. I mean, these are the final days that led up to Jesus' death, and then his, uh, we're going to talk about after that as well. And so we've got a serious moment here in the life of Christ. Now, I'm going to do what I can to lighten it up, but honestly, guys, this is a really heavy passage of Scripture. It's a really heavy moment in the life of Jesus. And I've got a few questions about this passage. I mean, immediately what comes to mind is why do we have the magnitude of Jesus' agony? What is going on in Jesus that he says the things that he says? I mean, think about it. Why is Christ's sorrow so deep? What difference does that make to us? What is going on here? Well, I've heard a couple of people talk about this passage, and I've done some re- research and some reading. And, you know, a lot of people think that Jesus was just scared at the immediacy of his own death, right? I mean, Jesus was human, and God, his humanness, was really addressing and feeling the emotion of him facing his own death, right? Okay, so that's one theory, but I have a problem with that. See, I don't think that's what's going on here. I mean, Jesus knew what he was about. Time and time again, you have in the Gospels, Jesus is letting the disciples know, I'm about to go die. He's encouraging them. He's, spe- he's speaking faith into them. And now, if you think about it, we've got plenty of examples in history of martyrs, men and women, who have gone to their final destination, praising God, celebrating, I mean, dancing and singing in the flames. 
And even Stephen, if you think about Stephen, who was being stoned to death, the first martyr in the New Testament, I mean, he was standing there praising God, lifting up his eyes to the heavens as he was receiving a vision from the Lord. So I can't imagine that the Son of God, you know, was any less human than the average Joe who's got courage between us, right? I mean, Jesus had to have handled his imminent death a little bit better. So I think that that's, I don't think that's what's going on. I think there's something more going on in this chapter, okay? And we're going to take a look at that. What is actually happening? Jesus is terrified, okay? And I think that he's, he's not facing the reality of his own death because he, he's facing something more. So let's look at it. In verse uh, 37, it says, um, excuse me, I'm trying to look. He t- took Peter and th- two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So Jesus is troubled, it says. So what's going on with this word? This word troubled actually means he was in horror. Jesus was facing a very real horror in this situation, a terror. You know, I'm not a fan of, um, of those flicks, you know, like all the the horror flicks that, that, I don't know what's going on with our society where we feel like we've got to be scared to death. Like, I'm going to submit myself to personal mental torture, you know, and pay my money to do that. I just don't get that. I mean, I remember watching Clown House as a kid, like I was over at some sleepover, and it still gives me nightmares, okay? That's about all the horror that I need. But Jesus is facing a very real terror in this moment. It's a whole new category of suffering. You see, Matthew doesn't talk like this. He doesn't use language like this. Matthew's he, when the way that he accounts Jesus' life, he's just kind of giving the facts. And so he doesn't have a whole lot of emotional language in his gospel. But that, he breaks from that tradition to begin to describe in great, te- in great detail what Jesus is going through in this moment. And he's going through horror. So what is happening? A whole new category of suffering. Something is taking place that is beyond the regular categories of description. All right, so what is happening? Well, look at verse 39. Jesus prays this a couple times. He says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And then he says it again later on, right? He says, not unless I, unless I drink it, may your will be done. But I pray that this cup be taken away. So what is going on here? What does Jesus keep saying about the cup? What is going on with the cup? Well, I'll tell you. You see, in this, um, you, you probably don't see this here, but in the Old Testament, God talks about what the cup is. Isaiah, the prophet, he tells us about it, and Jeremiah does, and we're going to take a look at that this morning briefly. You don't have to turn there, because I got the passages on the screen, but let's look at Isaiah 51, 17, and Isaiah says this. He says, awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. And then Jeremiah 25, 15, and 16. This is what the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. Okay, so what is happening here? What is this cup? We see from the Old Testament that the cup is the cup of God's wrath. It's God's judgment. And that's a word we don't oftentimes use. I mean, I don't find myself bringing up the wrath, that word wrath, or even the wrath of God in everyday language. So what does that mean? What does wrath mean? Well, according to a dictionary, it's extreme anger, fury, and outrage. Okay, but theologically, in the Bible, when you talk about the wrath of God, what does it mean? Well, it's basically in the New Testament, the Old Testament, it means this, God's settled, measured, 
just and right indignation at human rebellion against God. And that's a heavy idea. But think about that. God's wrath is his settled, measured, just and right indignation at human rebellion against God. That's God's wrath. That's what wrath is all about. This is the cup that Jesus has come to drink for you and for me. Jesus chose this road for us. This is the road to redemption. So what's happening here in the garden? Jesus was facing the wrath of God, the sin of the whole world, and he staggered. That's what's going on in this moment. Jesus goes willingly to his death so that he can satisfy the righteous judgment of the Father. I mean, in answer to the question, who strikes Jesus? It's the Father. I mean, and this is one of those, you know, these mysteries when it comes to Christianity that we have a God, a holy God, a just, righteous, perfect God who had to have justice done. It's part of his nature. And all of that wrath and fury against the sin of the world had to land somewhere. And the only person who it could land on, who could take that punishment, was Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is facing here in the garden. He's facing the reality of the sin of mankind poured out on him. You know, I remember it being hard to imagine a loving God growing up. I remember having debates uh, uh, debates with a friend of mine, and he, you know, we would talk about it, and he'd be like, man, God is a God of love. And I'd be like, we would kind of agree. It's like, there, how can there be a hell? How can there be wrath with a God of love? How can those two exist together? I mean, honestly, that was hard for me growing up, like trying to figure out how a God of wrath and a God of love could be the same guy. Like, how does that work out? And I began to think about it. I mean, and I, I, I researched it, and I thought about it, I prayed about it, and I began to come to the conclusion that if you get rid of hell and wrath, God actually becomes less loving. If you get rid of wrath and hell, God actually becomes less loving. What do I mean by that? What am I talking about? Jake, are you gone crazy? Well, let me tell you, here's what I'm talking about. I mean, think about it this way. Anger. What is anger? Anger is simply love in action, Right? I mean, you're passionate about the things that you protect. Am I correct? We don't stand up for things that we don't love. And so, you know, I love like, fire. I mean, Jackie can tell you, I've got a couple of firearms in my house. I've got, I mean, you know, I'm a skeet shooter. You know, I've done that like two times, so now it's a hobby for me. So that's just kind of the way it works. And uh, I just get, Jackie's got me this, uh, she's got me a new shotgun for my birthday. I'm not supposed to play with it yet. But I'm, I'm going to try and convince her because we're going to go skeet shooting on the 18th with a bunch of guys. Guys, you're welcome to come with us. We're going to be down at Big Red Oak. Anyway, so that, we're going to go skeet shooting, and uh, I'm trying to convince her. But I, I love to shoot guns, man. I've got, you know, like, I've got the Glock 19, and I love taking target practice. But I really can't imagine using a firearm on another human being, okay? That's just reality. I mean, I just can't imagine that. And I think my life would probably be changed forever if I had to do that. Okay, I don't want that experience. I don't even want that in a story. Like, I, would, I don't want that at all. And yet, if uh, a perpetrator decided to come up on in my house, mess with one of my girls, you better believe the wrath and fury of the Lord would come down on him via the 9 millimeter. <laughs> Bullets would be flying, y'all. Shells would hit the ground. Okay? That's what would happen. Why? Because I love my girls. 
and I'm going to protect the things that I love. And so anger and fury rises up inside of us, and it's righteous and just that it should, because we protect the things that we love. If there is no justice, what happens? Then the outcry of the weak goes unanswered. And guys, there are many in this world who are crying for justice. Would it be loving of a God to ignore them? Would it be loving of a God to silence those cries and say, no, I'm sorry, there is no justice for you? That's the way love works. Love protects the things that it needs to protect. God loves us with a furious love. But it didn't end with the fact that God had to pour his wrath out on something. He sacrificed his son, his very own son, to satisfy his wrath and his fury. It's amazing. But if you lessen either one of those, if you lessen the wrath of God, if you take that away, what does the sacrifice become? It's meaningless. What Jesus did on the cross? There's no reason for that. There's no reason for Jesus to pay for our sins if we have a loving God who just loves us and accepts us just the way we are and there's no justice. That's not the way it works. God had to have perfect justice and there had to be a perfect sacrifice. It had to be that way for God to be loving. You see, in the garden, I heard someone put it this way, in the garden, Jesus was receiving from God what we deserve and we were getting from God what he deserves. We get the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what we get, man. This is the gospel. It's such good news. Every one of our debts, everything that we've done, everything that I've done personally, it's all swallowed up in the grace of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, when he's in the garden, he's getting a full-on view of the wrath of God, and he staggers. I mean, he's praying in the garden. He's on his face. He's sweating blood. Why is he so stressed out? He is facing the reality of the sin of all mankind. I mean, that is a heavy idea. I wish I could lighten it up. I wish I could make this flowery and fun. But honestly, it's, it's important that we understand this. It's important that we get the gospel that this is what Jesus Christ came to do. Jonathan Edwards put it like this. If Christ had not fully known before he took the cup of God's wrath and drank it, it would not have been properly his own action as a human being. And get this, all right? But when he took the cup then, knowing what was in it, so was his love to us infinitely the more wonderful. And so was his obedience to God infinitely more perfect. Jesus had to know what he was facing on the cross. The Son of God had never experienced separation from his Father. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He never knew what it was like to be separated from the Father. He needed to know what he was getting into. And he saw it, and it made him stagger. So, here's my main point for this morning. And this is really the only point that I want to make, because this is it's such an important, powerful point, and it's this. Jesus faced the wrath of God in the garden to pave the way for our redemption. Jesus faced the wrath of God in the garden to pave the way for our redemption. And so Jesus wasn't thinking of himself. He wasn't scared for himself when he walked into the garden. He was thinking about you, and he was thinking about me. He was thinking for the whole world. 
He was seeing the reality of our sin. And he still chose to go to the cross. That's in, that is like mind-blowing for me personally. I can't imagine having to confront that pressure, that stress, that struggle, the sin of the whole world, and choosing to say, okay, I'm going to die for that. Uh, that's just beyond my understanding. And so Jesus took the cup of the wrath of God for you and for me. He took the cup of God's wrath, and in it was poured all of his anger and his fury, his hatred against the sin of the world, all the suffering, all the pain, every heinous crime, adultery, lying, blasphemy, stealing, dishonesty, the sin of the whole world was in that cup. Jesus drank the cup for you and for me. See, here's the thing about justice. For my God, justice cost him something dear. Jesus Christ has loved us with a costly love. His love demanded his greatest strength. You see, the road to pardon was paved with a decision. Jesus looked sin in the eye and he did not flinch. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he make that decision for us? Well, it's the sins of the whole world, the sins of you, the sins of me. That's the reason why he went to the cross, and he saw it for what it was. Scripture says, my dad used to do this analogy when I was a kid. Scripture says that he who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's what happened. Jesus took on the sin of the whole world on the cross. Jesus made one right choice, one right choice for us so that every bad choice we make will be swallowed up in God's grace. That's what he did. On the, on the, in the garden he saw it, on the cross he completed it. So what does this mean for you and me? I mean, this is kind of a short sermon. We've only got one point. And I want to get quickly to what does this mean for us? Well, it's interesting to note the disciples' role in this account, right? I mean, what are they doing? By the way, just a couple of verses up, we didn't read this, but Every one of the disciples are like, Jesus tells them, look, you're going forsa- to forsake me. You're going to leave me. And they're like, no, Lord, we are never going to leave you. Peter goes on to say, even if everyone else falls away, Lord, I will never leave you. And then he's got his head on a rock, you know, just chill out, sleeping, while Jesus is facing the most difficult moment of his life. Right? So this is what happened. I mean, the, the disciples show their weakness. They show their inability to walk the road that Jesus is about to walk. And it's the same for us. I mean, we are weak. We, we can't do this. We can't achieve salvation on our own. Jesus had to go it alone. He had to do this by himself. No one could stand up to what Jesus had to face in this moment. Not one of us. Nobody could. The disciples couldn't. They abandoned him. They left him. And see, that's the thing. Jesus had to be alone. And so here's the reality for us. The greatest and most profound suffering that any of us will face is the reality of our own sin. Okay, and I know that we've been through some tough times, and many of you have seen some challenges. 
But here's the reality. The greatest pain and suffering that any one of us will ever face personally is the reality of our own sin in our life. I mean, that's me, man. I, I, I know that I have made more dumb decisions for myself than I can ever blame on anybody else. The pain that I've inflicted on myself is immense. And that's the truth with all of us, man. All of us have got sin that has separated us from God. It's not just because of some evil that is out there that is happening. It's because of what is in our own hearts, inside of us, in our hearts that's going on. Our greatest wounds are self-inflicted. I was reading a book this week by Cornelius Plantinga. Those of you who are philosophy lovers, is Alvin Plantinga's brother. You probably don't even care about that. But anyways, he says, in him, I was reading him this week, and he's got this book called A Breviary of Sin. It's a great book, and talks about you know, the fallenness of mankind, how, we've been, how we have broken our relationship with God, what are the results of that, and how it can be redeemed. And he says this about our own sin. Okay, Cornelius says this. He says, the heart of sin is rather the persistent refusal to tolerate a sense of sin. It's a refusal to take responsibility for one's sin, to live with the sorrowful knowledge of it, and to refuse to pursue the painful way of repentance. Many of us see that we have fallen from God. The question is, what do you do with that sense? That sense that you have been separated from God, that our sin has put a chasm between us and God. Plantinga goes on to say, evil people are simultaneously aware of their evil and desperately trying to resist that awareness. And so the warning for us is not that, man, we're going to sin. Of course we're going to sin. That's a given. In my, I can't, dude, I sin in my good, of the things that I'm trying to do for good. You know, like in my obedience, I'm still concerned, hey, how's this looking for Jake? You know? And honestly, even the good stuff that we do, we still sin. So that can't be the problem. The warning is when we are aware of our sin, when God helps us to be aware of it, what do we do with that awareness? Do we repent? Do we respond? Do we humble ourselves before him? That's the question for us. Our greatest wounds are self-inflicted, self-inflicted. But here's the Christian hope. Because God is good. All suffering, even the self-inflicted kind, all suffering for a Christian. God wants to take every bit of our suffering, all of our pain, all the challenges that we face, and he wants to bring about our good as a result of it. That's the promise of the Christian is that somehow in the kingdom, the way this works is that even when things are difficult, even the suffering that we experience, God turns it so that he brings about our good. I mean, think about it this way, right? We've got this beautiful picture. Margalina did an incredible job. This is a gorgeous picture of the suffering that Christ was going through in the garden. Margalina worked hard to become the artist that she is, right? And so there are probably hours, countless hours of her working over pencil sketches, you know, crumbling it, throwing away, trying again. This right here, I, I, I would call this a masterpiece. This is probably not Margalina's best work, and I bet she's got even better work than this. But think about it. Think about what the artist works over to create his, master, his or her masterpiece. Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. And you might as well have a lifetime of work. What do you do with your greatest artwork? Your, I mean, you, you scrape over. You work it. You, you get it perfect. You keep drawing until something gets right. You keep working, keep stressing, keep fighting until it is perfect. Guys, we are no mere sketch to the Father. We are his magnum opus. We're his masterpiece. 
And so he is going to keep working, keep scraping, keep rendering, keep changing, keep putting the pressures into our lives until he makes us like his son, Jesus Christ. The suffering of a Christian always brings about a greater good. It has to. I mean, look at what happened to Jesus. The magnitude of his suffering. The redemption and the glory that followed. What did we deserve? The wrath of God. What did we get as a result of his suffering? Forgiveness and redemption. So think about that. If God can accomplish that through Jesus' suffering, think about what he can accomplish through yours. Think about what God can do with the trials and the difficulties that you're facing today. Scripture says that we are facing momentary light afflictions, which are incomparable to the weight of glory that we receive from knowing Jesus Christ. It's weighty, y'all. It's a big deal. These are momentary light afflictions. One day, we are going to celebrate in eternity with Jesus Christ. All the pain, all the suffering, all the heartache, all the difficult things that we're going through. It's momentary. It's here and it's gone. We will celebrate with Jesus for eternity. But guess what? It doesn't have implications just for the the sweet by and by. God wants to bring about glory in your circumstances, through your suffering, right here and right now. That's what he wants to do. He is able to do that. Now we have pain. Now we have suffering. But God wants to turn it to bring about a good in us and a glory for his name. If you have a love relationship with God, God arranges your suffering so that it brings about your good. He did so with his son. Why would he do any less for you? So how do we use this truth? All right, this is the, this is the, part, the part that I want to close with. How do we use this truth for the real and practical suffering that we face day in and day out? Because guys, we're going to go back tomorrow, and you've got to go back to jobs, and you've got to go back to kids, and you've got to go back to whatever. You know, you've got situations that you're in that this has got to make sense for. This has got to apply to. So what do we do? What do we do with the real struggles that we face day in and day out? We look to Jesus and his model right here in this passage. During the most difficult moments of Christ's life, he had one response. What did he say? He said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. You know, I said this before, you know, in in how we face our suffering, how we look to our suffering, how we deal with our suffering shows a lot about our hearts. How we respond to pressure can even tell you what you think and how you see God. Because if you think about it, if Jesus isn't real, if his truth isn't practical, if his truth isn't applicable in those moments, what good is it? I mean, we have to be able to appropriate the reality of God in the most challenging of circumstances. Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. What is the Christian response to suffering? Lord, whatever your will. Lord, I humble myself before you. I submit myself before you. I want to remain teachable before you, Lord God. I will allow you to deconstruct my idea of me and reconstruct an image of Jesus Christ. And so each and every day, when I face challenges, when I face struggles, when I face the reality of my own shortcomings, I will humble myself. I will submit myself. 
I will allow you to lead through me. Not my will, but thy will be done. You know, in Matthew 7, there's a warning. Jesus says that many will come and call on my name in the last days. One day we're all going to stand before Jesus and we're going to give an account. And he said, many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? give some examples. Didn't we prophesy, heal the sick, cast out demons in your name? And Jesus says to them, you never knew me. Depart from me. How do we know God? How can we know him? Well, it says in Philippians that we must know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's how we know him is that we get to know him, we learn from him, we say, thy will be done in the midst of the most challenging things that we could ever face. And the warning there for us, and all of us, and me included, man, we've got a warning that says, look, Jesus said, look, for those of you who understand this, who get the kingdom, why do you get it? It says in that Matthew 7 passage, because you've done the will of the Father. So guys, that's what we've got to submit ourselves to. We have to humble ourselves. Don't let your heart be hardened. Don't become embittered towards God. I, don't, I know you guys are facing some hard stuff, stuff that I can't even imagine. I know your challenges are great. Turn to Jesus Christ. Humble yourself before him. Maybe it's been a while since, you're, since you humbled yourself before God. Today is the day to salvation. So I want to invite you guys to pray with me. Let's just spend some time with the Lord this morning. And I want to call... If you would like, I want to call each and every one of us to an opportunity to just bring some confession before the Lord. You know, we were, we were hanging out as a staff this week, and we just got on our, we had to get on our faces before the Lord. Something heavy is going on right now in our church. And so I just want to invite you to just repent. <laughs> repent and, and, and be healed in Jesus' name. And I want to call you right now, each and every one of you, to a time of confession. And I just want to encourage you to get real specific in your confession. I mean, get, give, pour before God a reality that you are experiencing right now that you want to confess to Him. You could do it in your seats, but I want to invite you, man, come on down front. Get right with God. The altar is open. I mean, so come down front right now. I just want to invite anybody and everybody who would like to come down front in this moment and pray and ask God to just repent and confess what's going on in your life. You might have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Now is the morning, man. Get it right. Don't wait another moment. Don't wait another minute. Come forward right now and give your life to Jesus. Respond. You know what? Maybe you've been praying for revival in our city, in our church. Maybe you've been asking God to do a great work. I want to invite you, even now, come on down front, man. Come pray with us. Come down front. If you've been asking God to do a great work in this city, man, I want to see the saints rise up and come down here and confess and pray and seek God like you never have before. Man, let's get it right with God this morning. Let's ask Him to do big things in our midst. So let's pray to Him this morning, man, and we're going to sing, we're going to celebrate, and let's get right with God today. You guys can keep going, man. Nobody's, there's no pressure. Stay with the Lord. Be with Him. 
But I do want to give an opportunity for anybody who, you know, maybe this morning for the first time you you actually understood what the gospel was all about. And you, you're ready to respond. You're ready to become a Christian. Now, I want to give you that chance, that opportunity right now. It's very simple. You can just pray this simple prayer with me. Say it in your own words. Just repeat after me however you want to do it. But let's, let's all pray right now. Let's bow our heads. If you're ready to pray this prayer right, right now, this morning, just say this along with me. Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. I've done many things that, I don't, that don't please you. I've lived my life for myself. Jesus, I am sorry and I repent. I ask you to forgive me. I believe that you died on the cross for me to save me from my sins. You did what I could not do for myself. I come to you now and ask you, take control of my life.